Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, AI is about to be everywhere, skeptics risk being left behind by Christopher Mims. Then an article by Stuart Criquet. Finally, there's a humane method of execution. Greg Opelka has an article, there's a high in the middle of Ohio. And Rochelle Louise Ensign wrote, want this 6% CD? You'll need $5 million. And then we'll follow that up with an article by Matthew Hennessy. Happy Days is here again. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first one. AI is about to be everywhere. Skeptics risk being left behind. Jackie Liang is living in the future. An artificial intelligence engineer in Philadelphia He uses generative AI at work and in his personal life as much as possible, to the point that even my girlfriend is like, babe, please. The tools he's using to look things up during his downtime, brainstorm for work, punch up his resume, or write blog posts go well beyond the kind of first generation. AI that is already embedded in our daily lives, sorting our social media feeds, catching credit card fraud, and recognizing faces in our photos. The tools Liang relies on are all next-generation generative AIs, things like OpenAI's ChatGPT, Google's Bard, Anthropolic's Claude, and Inflection's PI. Soon, Most of us will use tools like these, even if indirectly, unless we want to risk falling behind. We will face a growing number of communications generated with AI assistance, plans made with their input, and even products they helped inspire. Productivity-enhancing technology tends to improve our output or make it more plentiful, forcing people to change how they work but not reducing the hours they spend at it. This means the gap between those using AI for productivity and everyone else threatens to widen into a chasm as we contend with more and more stuff produced by the combination of human minds and new kinds of machine assistance. A recent global survey of 10,000 people by tech and consulting firm Capgemini found that people who have used generative AI tools for basic tasks like searching for and summarizing information were on the whole highly satisfied with them. For now, the generative AI tools that can boost people's productivity require an early adapter's mindset, since the purveyors of these tools are still using unknown to many and using them to best effect remains an uncommon skill. But recently, the giants of the United States tech industry made it clear they have plans to bring the capabilities of generative AI deep into tools most of us use every day, where they will be nearly impossible to avoid. 
In the past two weeks, Microsoft announced deep integration of generative AI tools across Windows 11. Google rolled out changes to its BARD generative AI that allows it to use all your documents, emails, and calendar items as fodder. Amazon showed off the next generation of generative AI capabilities for its Alexa Smart Assistant, which should make it chattier and more flexible. And Meta announced it would make a chat-based assistance, as well as a host of other chatbots based on celebrities available on Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook. Even Apple, which is yet to announce its own text-based generative AI, but is developing one, last week rolled out a new accessibility feature for iPhones that uses a different form of generative AI to clone a user's voice. The sudden accessibility and ubiquity of generative AI tools do not guarantee that they'll be used. And these are very much first-generation technologies full of frustrating limitations. But if the utility that early adapters already get out of them is any indication, adoption by the masses will soon follow. As more people use AI to help them generate written and visual communications more quickly, the volume of that content is likely to increase. This could mean AI will also be needed to respond to this uptick in information in the form of better filters for it, but also in the use of AI to help generate responses to it. Those who don't opt to use AI to help them summarize others' reports, likely generated with the help of AI, respond to emails, ditto, or adapt to new business processes, also created with the help of AI, risk drowning in a fire hose of communications and increased complexity. Another way generative AI could make itself impossible to avoid, by becoming the default interface for information retrieved from the internet and within companies. Already, one of the things language-based generative AI systems are pretty good at is search and summarization. One potential stumbling block to the use of AI in this way, it often makes stuff up, a tendency that is inherent to the way it works and may be unavoidable. This reduces its value somewhat as it means that we can't just hand tasks over to AI and all of its work must be checked. But AI is still pretty good at taking care of a lot of rote tasks, like writing often used boilerplate code or text and can save its users time by turning them into editors rather than content creators. This talent for making information more accessible and transforming it into other kinds of information more easily is apparent in Google's new BARD rollout called Extensions. Enabling BARD to search and summarize across everything in your Google account yields, in my own experience, some astonishing results. For example, I asked it to summarize recent documents I'd created that contained ideas for a specific creative project. It not only delivered a succinct summary of the context of these documents, but it also editorialized correctly that the ideas contained in them were at an early stage. Note to future historians, the kind of low-key humiliation represented by a robot dispassionately observing that a human's idea are half-baked 
began approximately now. Becca Chambers is a senior vice president at Ottawa-based software company Aludo, formerly known as Corel. When she's planning a vacation, she uses OpenAI's ChatGPT and Google's Bard. Recently, she says, she used the two engines to plan an eight-day Hawaiian vacation, including helping her pick a hotel and coming up with itineraries for every day of the trip. The whole process took two days and played out as a dialogue between her and the chat box. She gave the bots parameters, how many people were coming, their dietary restrictions, the fact they'd be renting a car, and then she asked them to refine their suggestions such as ranking hotels by price and adding or subtracting items from their suggested itineraries. Recently, Liang had to prepare for job interviews. He used Claude and ChatGPT to help by having the bots pretend to be an interviewers interested in hiring for a product management role. He also used them both at the beginning of the process of writing a blog post to help brainstorm and at the end to turn his jumble of notes into a finished blog post, which he can then edit before posting. Liang even uses one chatbot, PI, as a kind of counselor to help him process challenges in his life. Sometimes you're not looking for someone to give you solutions. You're just looking for someone to listen to you and ask you targeted questions, he adds. As more people come to rely on chat-based information retrieval, Disinvestment in the old way of doing things could mean those who stick with plain old search find themselves the contemporary equivalent of people who still used card catalogs and printed indexes when digital surf was first ascended. The creeping ubiquity of generative AI, both as a way to do things and an influence of everything we're exposed to, doesn't mean that any one of these tools or companies will succeed. The pace and simultaneity of all of these announcements from so many tech companies suggests that what's going on now is a manic land grab for our attention, money, and time. Not all of these tools will endure, especially given the mounting costs of running them. But the overall trajectory of generative AI seems clear at least to those who are currently its most devoted users. And the history of productivity-enhancing automation suggests they may be right. AI feels like such an important tool that if you're not using it, you're missing out, says Chambers. I think that's what AI is. Less effort, better results. And finally, there's a humane method of execution. Kenneth Eugene Smith may soon be put to death for the 1988 murder for hire of 45-year-old Elizabeth Sennett. Charles Sennett, a pastor, promised Mr. Smith and two other men $1,000 each to kill his wife, who was found beaten to death with a fireplace implement. Charles Sennett committed suicide soon after. Recently, on August 25th, Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall filed a request with the state Supreme Court for a date to execute Mr. Smith. If the state does so, it may mark a fundamental shift in the method of capital punishment in the United States. 
back in 2007, Mr. Smith amended his 2006 appeal of his capital sentence to object to lethal injection as his method of execution, alleging that it could subject him to substantial pain. As if to prove his point, Mr. Smith's scheduled execution on November 17, 2022, had to be canceled after technicians failed to place intravenous needles into his veins before his death warrant expired. Mr. Smith's lawsuit demanded that the state use a different method, nitrogen anoxia, also called nitrogen asphyxiation. The 2018 Alabama law approving this method describes it as nitrogen hypoxia, but that's not quite right. Hypoxia means reduction of oxygen levels in the blood. Breathing pure nitrogen induces anoxia, a total depletion of blood oxygen. News articles often describe nitrogen anoxia as unproven as an effective and painless method of execution. In fact, inert gas anoxia is a well-known cause of death in industrial accidents. According to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, 16 Americans died from 2017 to 2022 in workplace incidents involving nitrogen asphyxiation. Back in a 2003 safety bulletin, the European Industrial Gas Association warned, inhalation of an oxygen-depleted atmosphere can cause a person to immediately lose consciousness with no warning, such as dizziness, and die from asphyxiation. Tragically, there have been many examples of fellow workers coming to the aid of victims and becoming victims themselves because they were not aware of the cause of the initial incident. Nitrogen anoxia is painless. It requires no drugs, poisons, or medical procedures, and its effects are well understood, consistent, and reliable. Its first symptom is loss of consciousness. The electric chair, the gas chamber, and lethal injection were all invented with the goal of making executions more humane by instantly inducing unconsciousness. The hope was that the condemned wouldn't feel pain. But none of those methods reliably cause unconsciousness as an initial effect. Nitrogen anoxia is different. The urge to breathe that develops when a person holds his breath isn't caused by the depletion of oxygen from the body. Rather, it's due to the buildup of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream, which changes the pH balance of the blood. Skin divers have to be careful not to hyperventilate to blow off CO2 and stay under longer. Their blood oxygen may deplete before carbon dioxide buildup prompts them to breathe, causing them to black out before reaching the surface so that they drown. When someone breathes pure nitrogen, he exhales carbon dioxide even though he takes in no oxygen. Since carbon dioxide isn't building up in the bloodstream, he never realizes that anything is wrong, thus, nor does he experience any discomfort. When his blood oxygen falls, he loses consciousness as his body attempts to limit oxygen consumption by reducing brain activity. Soon thereafter, all body tissues shut down and start to die for lack of oxygen. The use of nitrogen anoxia for executions would avoid another obstacle to lethal injection, drug availability. 
In 2011, the European Union banned the export of drugs intended for use in executions. In 2016, Pfizer, the last federally approved United States manufacturer of drugs for lethal injections, announced it would no longer sell its products for this purpose. South Carolina had been unable to find a willing supplier of pentobarbital for the past 12 years and thus been unable to carry out its death penalty. Only in September, it purchased a new supply and plans to resume executions. Pure nitrogen is universally available for many industrial suppliers and can even be produced literally out of the air. Thus, nitrogen is immune from restrictions on supply and from political pressures on suppliers. Nitrogen anoxia is a nearly perfect method of execution. Echoing the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, it deprives the condemned of life by depriving him of oxygen, the stuff of life. It involves neither physical trauma nor toxic drugs. The executed person's organs will even be suitable for a donation. Alabama was the third state to authorize nitrogen anoxia as an, accuse, as an execution method, following Oklahoma and Mississippi. In August 2021, the Alabama Department of Corrections completed the construction of a nitrogen anoxia apparatus, and the department has worked throughout 2023 to develop execution protocols for nitrogen anoxia. Now, Mr. Marshall has stated in his Supreme Court filing that Alabama intends to execute Mr. Smith by nitrogen anoxia. Mr. Smith's lawyers have already filed an appeal based on their argument that using this method is human experimentation, ignoring the real-world incidents of death by nitrogen anoxia and Mr. Smith's previous request for this method. Inevitably, there will be delays due to this and other litigation, but the method's first use may come as early as 2024. Society doesn't view it as morally acceptable to inflict the same suffering on a murderer that he inflicted on his victim. Nitrogen anoxia will inflict no physical pain. A murderer such as Mr. Smith will merely forfeit the balance of his natural lifespan. And now Greg Apolka's there's a high in the middle of Ohio. First, it was the communicator from Star Trek. Now it's the flying cars from the Jetsons. Little by little, the fantasy gadgets from the TV shows of my youth have become the reality of my adulthood. Recently, Joby Aviation said it would locate its first large-scale factory on a 140-acre site at Dayton International Airport in Ohio. Joby is one of several companies developing an electrical vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that can carry passengers and freight. But Joby, which became a publicly traded company in 2021, is headquartered in Santa Cruz, California. The company builds the craft so far away because of Dayton's connection to Wilbur and Orville Wright, the fraternal pioneers of aviation who grew up there and who in 1909 opened the Wright Company factory in their hometown to make their flying machines. The Air Force Research Laboratory in the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is a stone's throw away. 
In case anyone missed the connection, Joby made its announcement from Hawthorne Hill, Orville Wright's Dayton Mansion. Production is slated to begin in 2025, and Joby says the facility will be able to produce 500 aircraft a year. The vehicles will be designed for four passengers and a pilot, and capable of traveling 200 miles an hour. Ohio and aviation didn't end with the Wright brothers. Neil Armstrong, John Glenn, Apollo 13 survivor James Lavelle, and Judith Resnick, who perished in the 1986 Challenger disaster, are among 25 astronauts born in Ohio. So is my friend Greg Harbaugh, a Willoughby native, who flew four multi-day space shuttle missions, including the first to dock with the Russian space station Mir in 1995. I met Greg and his wife Carol in 2011, when I began a two-year stint playing piano in the band at the Unity Church where Greg was pastor. When I first met Greg, I had difficulty believing this low-key Midwesterner had spent more than 800 hours in outer space. Still, I have a feeling he found raising his three daughters even more challenging. Although it has Lake Erie on its northern border, something about the largely landlocked state of Ohio seems to drive its natives to seek the freedom of the air. Like the Wright brothers and the Ohio astronauts, Joby is following the example of another entrepreneur who fell trapped by his surroundings. Daedalus, the mythical ancient Greek inventor and architect of the elaborate labyrinth that trapped the Minotaur, was antiquity's Elon Musk. Imprisoned by King Minos on the island of Crete, Daedalus soon realized there was only one way out. As Ovid tells the story in his book eight of his epic Metamorphosis, Daedalus said of his captor king, let him block the land and waves, but surely the sky is open. We'll go that way. With that epiphany, he began his creation of the fateful wax and feathers flying contraption, which, although a success, the Aedalus escape crate, tragically claimed the life of his son Icarus. From ancient Crete to 21st century Dayton, flights of fancy have become flights of fact. Here's a possible name for one of Joby's first models, Daedalus. And now, want this 6% CD? You need $5 million. J.P. Morgan Chase has got a deal for you if you have an extra $5 million lying around. The New York Bank, the largest in the United States, is offering customers of its private bank division a 6% rate on a six-month certificate of deposit if they put $5 million or more into the product. J.P. Morgan isn't exactly hurting for deposits, but like other banks, its overall deposits have declined since the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates in early 2022. Special rate offers are a bid to keep wealthy customers happy and maybe earn more of their business. Mass market customers shouldn't expect the same. J.P. Morgan is paying 5% to retail banking customers who put in 100000 or more for the same period, according to its website. Customers who put in less than 100000 can earn 4%. The bank's 
basic interest-bearing checking and savings accounts still pay just 0.01%. Funds have to come from outside of J.P. Morgan to qualify for the 6% rate, the bank said. Other banks are advertising six-month CDs paying 5% or more. The 6% offered has some drawbacks. CDs don't have the same tax advantages that other products like treasuries can provide. If the Fed starts cutting rates, it may be hard for customers to find a CD with the same yield once the product matures. For years following the 2008-9 financial crisis, J.P. Morgan and other megabanks raked in deposits despite paying almost no interest on CDs and other products. Customers resigned themselves to earn nothing in exchange for access to big banks' technology and ubiquitous branch networks. After all, rates were pretty low everywhere. The deposit glut only intensified after the economic stimulus measures during the pandemic. J.P. Morgan added about $900 billion in deposits in 2020 and 2021. The Fed's steep rate increases changed that picture. By the start of this year, wealthy customers in particular were moving their extra cash into treasuries and money market funds for higher rates. Over the past year, deposits in J.P. Morgan's Asset and Wealth Management Unit have fallen 22%, far more than overall deposits. Wealth deposits are also down by double digits at competitors Bank of America and Wells Fargo. Banks are generally paying between 4% and 5% on new wealth management deposits compared with around 2.5% to land regular customers' deposits, said Adam Stockton, a managing director at Curinos, a firm that tracks data including deposit rates. He said a 6% rate is very rare. J.P. Morgan CD has a maximum deposit of $100 million. The offer, though, does end soon. And now Matthew Hennessy's Happy Days is here again. My seven-year-old son is a big fan of the Fonz. Those words really meant something once, but Happy Days, the show that introduced the world to Arthur Fonzarelli at its last episode nearly 40 years ago. The time has passed when you could do a double thumbs up, say, I, and expect a young person to get the reference. A refresher for Generation Z. Happy Days was a half-hour situation comedy on ABC from 1974 to 84. Created by Gary Marshall, the show was set in Milwaukee and revolved around the middle-class Cunningham family, Howard and Marion, and their children, Richie and Joni. Minor characters, Patsy and Ralph Mouth, palling around at Arnold's Diner, but the star was The Fonz. Happy Days was a 1970s phenomenon, but it was set in the 1950s, making it among the earliest expressions of baby boomer nostalgia. No American generation has been better at memorializing and mythologizing its own life cycle. The fashion and music of the 50s had a profound influence on the 70s. The 60s did the same for the 80s. The hodgepodge of these overlapping areas is likely to confuse historians of the future, so let me clear something up for posterity. 
It's impossible to overstate the cultural, import, the cultural importance of the Faz in his time. He was the biggest thing on TV, which was the biggest thing in America. Henry Winkler, 77, is now a nebbishy character actor with a reputation as one of the sweetest guys in Hollywood. But in leather jacket and tight jeans, he was as cool as they come. The Fonz was a light caricature of the greaser archetype, slick, tough, a chick magnet. He rode a motorcycle and spoke in Brooklynese. The mid-70s were the height of the Italian stallion phase of American masculinity. His cartoonish catchphrases, whoa, sit on it, were ubiquitous. That was two generations ago. You don't hear much about the Fonz anymore. But like most parents, my wife and I are always on the hunt for safe shows for our kids to watch. Tween programming is as vapid as ever, but these days it comes with a distinct woke overlay. Pronoun preaching and climate propaganda have replaced slapstick and potty humor. None of that works for us. Our solution is to fire up Amazon Prime and turn back the clock. Billy is obsessed with the Fonz. He snaps his fingers and poses in front of the mirror. For Halloween, he plans to go as his favorite sitcom rebel without a cause. Is the Fonz still alive? Billy asked my wife recently. Yes, but this show is from a long time ago, she said. The guy who played him is a lot older now. If you saw him, you might not recognize him. He looks stricken. You mean the Fonz isn't cool anymore? The answers to such questions aren't always obvious or satisfying. Billy will learn eventually how fickle cool can be. It doesn't always translate across the generations. In the meantime, he and we can enjoy entertainment in the Internet age, where it's always 1976 somewhere. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.